Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. It's, it's a big weekend here at Trinity Church. We uh, have a lot of our, well, I don't know how many actually, a lot of our members are at Palapalooza today. How many of you know what Palapalooza is? Palapalooza, yeah, Palapalooza. Paul Smith runs Palapalooza. It's like the Scottish Highland Games, but Spokane style. And uh, I've been there many, many times. Thankfully, I didn't have to go this year, though. Because, I'm going to have to talk to Paul about his alignment of that too, you know, Sunday morning being gone. But, uh, because yesterday we were able to see Jacob Isbell get married. Yeah. Jacob's not here today, right? He's not here today. No, he should not be here today. Jacob and Amy got married and they're off and we're so excited for that. And so it's just been a wonderful weekend. And somebody told me today is Amy Kim's birthday. Amy Kim, are you, is this your birthday today? Happy birthday. I, I would sing happy birthday to you, but we're not going to do that. So it's just a, it's just a much a celebration going on this weekend. So good weekend to be here at Trinity Church. Good to see uh, several faces that I don't recognize and uh, some that I do recognize from other places. Just really good to see you this morning. We are in Genesis chapter two today. We started our series in Genesis several weeks ago, and today we're moving to chapter 2. So we're on to chapter 2 today, starting in verse 4, going to read all the way through verse 25, Genesis chapter 2. If you would please join with me in standing out of honor for God's word as we read God's word together, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Verse 4 here, we have our first Toledot. And if you were here for our very first uh, sermon on Genesis, we talked about the Toledot and how those structure out Genesis. This is our first Toledot. Everything to this point has kind of been the the preface, okay? And now we're getting into the, the meat of of the structure of Genesis. So starting in verse 4 there, follow along with me as I read all the way down through verse 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then... The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Here in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have the description of the world, a world that is very good. You could say that Genesis 2 is the description of the good life, the way life is meant to be. It's good. Every one of us, I know this about you, I I may not know certain details about your life, I may not know you intimately, but I know this about you. You long for a good life. I would love for you to come and disagree with me. This is true of you. You love and, and long for a good life. This is built into us. This is how we are created This description here in Genesis 2 is a picture of that good life, the good life that everyone longs for. This is why, as you know, the Garden of Eden is synonymous with this this idea of perfection, a perfect world, a utopia. Haven't you ever dreamed of that place? Haven't you ever dreamed of a place or a situation or a circumstance where everything will come together and everything will be as it should be? What does that place look like for you? Have you ever stopped and actually thought about it? What does that place look like for you? What does that good place consist of? What is the good life made of? What does it look like in your imagination? What kind of things, what kind of things aren't there when you think of the good life? What, what are you doing while you're in that good life? As you imagine this, this, this place that is perfect, what are you involved in doing in that good place? You see, again, I, I know this about you. We all think about a place, a situation, a circumstance where life is the way it should be, where life is fulfilling and satisfying, where everything in our life comes together and finally makes sense. And and truthfully, it says a lot about us, what we daydream on and what we think about, what isn't in that place and what is in that place and what we're doing in that place. This says a lot about our hearts and what our hearts are fixed on. Your thought life, what you think on, your thoughts and intents of your heart. This is the most important part of your life. It's what motivates you. It's what shapes your affections, your desires. And here, this is, this is why... This is, this is a very important passage for us. Even though you, you come to this, you say, I already know this story. I already know what's going on in here in Genesis 2. No, what's going on here in Genesis 2 is, is that God is showing us where our affections and where our desires should begin, where they should be aimed, and where they will be fulfilled. In this chapter, Genesis chapter 2, we see this reality. This is, this is the main idea. If I were to give a main idea to this whole chapter, it's this. God is the giver of life. If you want life, God is the one who can give it. God is the giver of life, particularly, specifically, we see this here in Genesis 2, it is Yahweh. Yahweh. 
Yahweh shows up. The name, the covenant-keeping name of God shows up here first in Genesis 2. In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to as Elohim. Now, and it's, it's very obvious, the emphasis is on the Lord God. You see it in all caps there, L-O-R-D. That is his name, Yahweh. Yahweh God is the giver of life. I'm going to give you three realities that we find here in Genesis 2. The last point is going to be the one we stay on just a little bit longer. But I want want to show you how Genesis 2 points to Yahweh as the giver of life. Point number one, God creates man to live in his good land. God creates man to live in his good land. You, you, you probably notice some of the parallels and yet some of the differences between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It seems like it's telling the same story. We, we saw in Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the universe. Now in chapter 2, we see this another, another creation account. Is this a competing creation account? Well, what's going on here in Genesis 2? In Genesis 2, what we have, maybe this visual picture will help you, we have in Genesis chapter 2, verse 26 through 31 of Genesis chapter 1, kind of double-clicked on and zoomed in on. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, we have God creating man in his image, as his image. We talked about last week. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in Genesis chapter 2, Moses is double-clicking on that, on that important passage, and he's zooming in, and he's going to show us exactly what took place in the formation of man and woman. And here we have it. It opens up with the creation of Adam. And Adam, God creates Adam to live as a living creature to enjoy his good land. Look, look at it there. We find as this scene unfolds, the ground is in need of being worked. God has not caused it to rain on the land, and there is no man to work the ground. So, verse 7, then at that time, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God, we see very clearly, the Lord God is the initiator and the source of life. And he creates man as a living creature from the dust, from the ground. Now, last week, we talked about man being made as God's image. And we've, we've been saying this the last couple of weeks, right? You need to look yourself in the mirror. What do we need to tell ourselves in the mirror? Remember? I am not God. I hope you've been doing this. I hope you've been actually standing in front of the mirror and doing this. I am not God. Every day we need to remind ourselves, I am not God. But, last week we heard, but I am his image. I have dignity and I have destiny. I am am God's image upon the earth. That's what I'm created to be. Well, we can add to that even this week. I am not God, but I am his image Created from the dust. And this is a reminder to us of really who we are. The Bible says that God remembers our frame, that we are dust. This, this reminds us that we are from the ground. Our life its source, it is all about God. He is the one who has given us life. It was his own breath that he used to breathe into us life. And he is the great life giver. Our life is dependent upon him. Do you believe that this morning, that your life is completely dependent upon God? Can... can, 
I used to tell young people this all the time. You are dirt. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? You are dirt. Apart from God's work, apart from God's creative work, apart from God's breath, you are dirt. Let's not think too much of ourselves. And at the same time, let's see God's intention and God's provision and God's goodness in making us and giving us life. This life is not ours to hold any way we want. This life is from him. To be used for him. We see that God then takes man and he plants man or puts man rather in the garden that he has planted. Again, this theme of God being the life giver. Man is placed or rested in the garden. God plants a garden. Do you see it right there in verse 8? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. God is a gardener. He creates life. That's who he is. So when you go out into your garden... This, this is you, and, and it really is, this is you mirroring, picturing the work of God to bring life to the earth. This is why it's good for us. God plants a garden. Ezekiel 28 describes this garden, and we don't have time to look at Ezekiel 28. It's magnificent there in Ezekiel 28. The king of Tyre is being talked about in his downfall. The king of Tyre is talked about as an Adamic figure in the Garden of Eden. Very figuratively, in the Garden of Eden, a mountaintop garden of God. This king is tossed out because of his pride. So we see that Eden is this beautiful mountaintop garden And in this garden, we're told here in this passage that there are two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll return to that momentarily. But there's also a river. A river flowing out of this garden where then it is divided into four rivers. So there are trees and there is a river. And this Eden, this garden, is the place where God rests mankind. But what does he give man to do? Look at it there in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him, rested him. You could read that. The Lord God took the man and rested him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and Keep it. Man, Adam. The man was given clear responsibility to work and to keep the garden of Eden, to to work and to keep the ground from which he came. These words are very important words, to work and to keep. You probably know this, but if you don't know this, this is extremely important. Later on, these same two words are going to be used uh, as it describes, as Moses describes in the book of Numbers, the priestly office and the priestly responsibility. The priest is to work, to serve in the tabernacle, and to keep it, to guard it to keep anything unclean from coming into it. So, here's the picture. God has established a mountaintop sanctuary where his presence dwells. And there in that place, he has rested his image bearer, mankind. And in that place, this image bearer is to act as a priest, working and keeping the tabernacle that is Eden. Man is given this responsibility as a priest. And it is good. The entire scene is meant 
to cause us to revel in God's goodness and provision and long for this life. God creates man to live and to live well as a priest in his good land. But that leads us to point number two. At the end of this opening scene, God gives a command. Look at it there in verse number 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In this we see, not only does God create man to live in his good land, secondly, God commands man in order to preserve his life in that good land. I don't want you to miss that. So so number one, God creates man to live in his good land, but then God commands man in order to preserve his life in that good land. As I said earlier, there are two trees. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? When we think of the Garden of Eden, we always think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we know that's where the story's going. And if you don't know that that's where the story's going, come back next week, we're going to talk about that's where the story's going. We only think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in fact, there were two trees in the garden. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but then there's also what? The tree of life. There are two trees. And God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. By implication, the tree of life is here for you to eat. But... You should not eat, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So there are two trees in the garden. One for life and one that brings death. Why is it called the tree that brings death, why is that called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And many people speculate. And again, this is kind of like what I said last week. People will take things like this and they'll just bring their theology and kind of make things fit in there because that's, that's what fits their own theology or what they want to say. But, but here's what's going on with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about autonomy. Autonomy. Do you know what autonomy means? This... This choosing of one's own path. I will rule myself. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a choice to leave God's path, to leave God's path of life, and to plot my own course, to be my own God. To be my own ruler. And so the tree stands there in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what God is saying with that. You say, why, why did God even put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there? Because God is, God is communicating to Adam. God is communicating to mankind. God is saying, truly he's asking He's saying, Adam, will you trust me? Adam, will you trust me? Will you trust my goodness? Will you trust my design? Will you trust my good heart for you, Adam? Will you trust my commands? Isn't, isn't, this, isn't this what is at stake, right? When our parents, our parents give us commands or give us structure or give us design for our life. And we, 
We don't understand why they've chosen what they've chosen. We don't understand why they're asking what they're asking. We don't understand why they put rules in places they put rules. And in our heart we go, Ah, I don't understand. Or rather, my parents don't understand me. I only know that because that was exactly how I felt. In fact, in fact, let's just be honest. That's how I feel anytime anybody wants to exert authority over me. Right? They don't understand me and my situation. They don't know me. And, and at, this, at the heart of that, what I'm saying is, I don't think that they want what's good for me. I don't think that they really have my good at their heart. And so... Because I want what's good for me, because I want that good life, and I don't think that my parents or my authority can bring me to that good life, because they obviously, they obviously don't understand me, right? Because they don't know what's good for me and I want the good life, I'm going to circumvent their authority to accomplish my good. That's very simple, right? But that, that's exactly what's happening. Here, he places two trees, God places two trees, and he says, here's life. And here is death. Death comes from seeking your own way. Will you trust me? Will you trust my goodness? Will you trust my provision? Will you trust my design? Will you live under my good authority? And again, when we hear the word authority... All it seems we hear is the bad, negative, right? Power corrupts. No, no. That, that's post-fall corruption, man's sin. In truth, authority is good. God's authority is good. And he wants Adam to trust him. Will you choose, essentially? Will you choose, Adam? Will you choose life? I have given you everything. I have given you meaningful, significant work as priest and keeper and garter of my sanctuary. Will you trust me? Will you live in this purpose which I've given you? Will you trust me and obey me? And live under my rule. Now that sets up what will take place next week in Genesis chapter 3. We'll return to that. We see God creates man to live in his good land. And God gives command. God commands in order to preserve man's life in this good land. And I, I just have to say again. Do you realize that God's commands are always meant for life? God's commands and God's designs are always meant for life. Always. They are always good. While, while we may understand you not trusting your earthly father or mother, I don't want to get down, too far down that road. While we can understand necess, you know, sometimes not trusting those in authority over you, God's authority is always for your good. His commands are always for your life. And I, I make that point there because we, we live today in a world that is constantly bombarding us with this idea that God's designs are flawed or that God's rules are broken. And I'm, I'm telling you, and you need to hear this, that is not true. It is not true. God's designs are good. His rules are for life. So God creates man to live in his good land. And God commands, he gives command in order to preserve man's life in that good land. And then, number three, we see in the back half of this text that God completes man. That's right. God completes man with a perfect helper. Get this. Who can produce life? 
God completes man with a perfect helper who can produce life. Verse 18, we see that not all in the garden is good. Look at it there. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. Now, that, that's very important because up to this point, all we've heard in the text is, it is good. God said it was good. God said it was good. And then he concludes chapter 1 with, it was very good. So here, this should cause us to halt in our tracks, to, to hard break, because here we see something is not good. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God deliberates once again. And we see here that something is not good. And what is not good? It is not good that man is alone. Man has been placed in God's temple. He has been placed as the priest, as his image bearer, to mediate God's good rule over the earth by working and guarding the garden. And it is so good. Yet something's missing. Rather, someone is missing. And this is important. Up to this point, up to this moment, we've seen that Adam has been created by direct work of God from the earth. Again, we've seen his role to live as a priest in the Edenic garden, to work in and to keep it. However, however, God's creative work is not only to form. That's what Adam was given to do, to form. Remember, we looked at this in Genesis 1. God forms creation and then he fills it. God forms it and then he fills it. God forms and then he fills. So up to this point, he has formed man from the ground. He has formed man and placed man and given man responsibility. But there is still this need of filling creation. And that is what's lacking. And Adam cannot do that work. Adam can form. Adam can build. Adam can keep and to guard. He can do that work, but he cannot fill the earth. This is what is meant when it says it is not good that the man should be alone. And I, I, I got to stop there and say, because we, I think sometimes we hear that, well, it's not good that this man alone, so that man is alone. And we hear that what God is really worried about is Adam's relationship. Adam needs a companion. Adam needs somebody to keep him company. Well, there, there's obviously truth to companionship. But get it, people, he has God. He doesn't need more relationship. He has the relationship. He has God. No, what he needs is someone to help him accomplish the mission that God has given him. And the mission is to fill the earth. And he can't do that. It's, he's, he's all alone in that work. He can't do that work without a helper. And that's what we see God say. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a, a helper fit for him. It's not that Adam is lonely. It's that he has a mission to accomplish. And he needs a helper. Now that word helper, real quick. That word helper, right, sounds to you and me like a derogatory term. That's the job we give to the useless people. Helper, a lot of times, right? At least that's the role I always get. When I'm working with John Leo on something, he makes me his helper, which means don't touch anything important. <laughs> Go get the tools when I need you to get them and don't do anything that I don't tell you to do, right? So that's what we usually think of as helper. But that, that is not the use of the term. We, we've got we've to wash our brains of that idea, okay? In fact, the word helper, azare, is used often in the Old Testament and very often it is used to speak of, this idea is used to speak of God. God is the helper. It is in no way a demeaning term. God is the Azar. And when we sing that song, and I named one of my sons, right? Who will remain nameless except I'm going to name him right now. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Eben. Ezer. Help. 
the stone of help. We raise our Ebenezer because God has helped us to this point. It's a wonderful term. And here, it says that the woman will be man's helper. She will complete him. Now, in order to show Adam his need, it's, it's kind of comical the way it goes about this, because God knows what he needs, but Adam doesn't yet know what he needs. And so what God does is he takes all of the beasts and birds that he's formed from the ground, and he brings all of them to Adam to name. That's what it says. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And, and there you see man's authority. There you see Adam's authority and role to name the creatures of the earth. But in this process, as he's naming them, there is not found a helper fit for him. So he's going through all the creatures that God has made. And he's naming all these creatures. And as he's naming them, what he's coming to realize is, there is no one like him. He is the only one of his kind made as the image of God. Adam sees his need. Adam sees that if I don't have one like me, I will never be able to carry out this mission. So, how is God going to answer this need? He takes one of Adam's ribs... And, and I don't know, have you ever thought about this? We hear this story all the time, right? But have you ever thought about this? Like, why did he take one of the ribs? Why did he take one of the ribs? And, and people have, you know, their, their sayings and things, and they're all good. You know, somebody, somebody will say, well, he didn't take a bone from the head so that woman wouldn't rule over man. He didn't take a bone from his foot so that, uh, you know, man would, would trod on her, but he took a rib from her side so that she would be alongside him. And, and that's terrible exegesis that actually is not. It's good theology. It's good theology. I mean, it's good theology. It's, it's, it's a great picture, right? He takes a rib, though. Why does he do this? He doesn't need a rib to make a person. He's already demonstrated that. He doesn't need anything. He, he can make everything out of nothing. He takes the man, he forms the man from the ground because it is to the ground that the man will give his responsibility or his, his work. He takes the woman from the man so that she will be made like him and she will give her responsibility and work to the man. This is the picture He takes the rib to communicate how exactly and who this helper will be. Upon waking, Adam then sees for the first time the one God has made for him. And this results, as you see down there in verse 23, this results in the first recorded words of man. And think about this. The first recorded words of man. The first recorded words of man is a poem. And it is a poem exulting in his wife. I hope that's convicting to you, sir. It's convicting to me as I think about it. I've been meditating on that reality all week. And, and it's, always, it's always a question of where we put different applications and things. But I've got to say that right here. Marriage is to be exalted in. It, it, is, it is good. I've been thinking all week long. It's like, do I exalt in my wife? I, I had the opportunity of, of officiating Jacob and Amy's wedding last night. And most of you have probably never had that experience of being the officiant maybe you've stood in the the groom or the bride's party you know um but standing right there next to the groom as 
the bride is revealed for the first time. That, that's what that moment is supposed to signify. It's supposed to picture Genesis 2. When the man sees his bride for the first time. And at that moment, what's, what's that experience like? I can tell you how Jacob, how it went down for Jacob last night, right? Amy comes out from behind the hay bales. There were all these hay bales. It was really, it was really country. It was great. So there's these hay bales and she comes out from behind the hay bales and she was beautiful. She was radiant. She was glorious. She was stunning, right? And what's Jacob doing? He's like, oh my goodness. And he, he, his whole, like, his whole demeanor and his whole posture and everything, right? He is excited. He's like, I can't believe it. She's coming. This is the moment we've waited for. This is it. She's mine. God is so good to give me this woman. I don't deserve this. And he doesn't. He doesn't deserve that, right? But that, that moment, that moment where the groom realizes what God has done for him. And that, that, that isn't about romance as much as it's about understanding God's good provision and God's love for us and how he's created us and how he's made us and true, truly how he's completed us. Now we know, we know that marriage is not necessary to image God. We are all, each one of us, made image of God. And, and so we, we've got to be careful not to act like you've got to be married in order to be complete. That's not true. We are, we are made image of God. But while saying that, there is, there is something wonderful and beautiful and completing about marriage. And it should be exalted. It should be praised. It should be held in high regard. Not everybody is given the gift of marriage. Paul says, right? Some, some should be single. Some will choose to be single. And this is good. Marriage, we know, is not ultimate. Marriage, we know, isn't our satisfaction, this side of heaven. But in saying that, sometimes I think we go so far as to act like marriage isn't wonderful. No, no, marriage is wonderful. It is good. I said this last night as we were looking at all these people. I said, marriage is good. And I, I, even, I can hear the people like, yeah, but you don't know my marriage. Marriage is good, but you don't know my life. Let's just live, though. I get that. I get there's all kinds of exceptions. We'll, we'll talk about that even again when we talk about reproduction and procreation. The other side of the fall, or this side of the fall, the, the experience we live in, this side of the fall, there are all types of grief and devastation because of sin. But for a second, can we just look at the, at the other side of the fall before sin and can we say that marriage, as God has designed it, is in fact very good? And marriage, which brings forth children, is very good. God is good in all that he has done to create life. He creates man to live in his good land. He gives man commandments for the preservation of his life. And he completes man with a helper to produce life. I want to spend just a couple of minutes to look at three, three truths about this, about this marriage, this first marriage. Very quickly. First of all, the man and the woman are the same. The man and the woman are the same. What do you mean? Well, again, Genesis 1. 
They are the same in that they are both made God's image. This is why, again, God took her from the man. She is like him. She is a helper uh, corresponding to him. Like him, man and woman, male and female, both image of God. Same worth. Oh, hear that. Same worth, same value, same dignity, same destiny. And this... This biblical description we have here in Genesis 2 is unique in the ancient Near Eastern context. We've been looking a lot at the ancient Near Eastern context and the contrast there in Genesis 1. In here, Genesis 2, what we see is something that's completely unique. In the pagan stories, there is not this emphasis on the creation of woman. This finds no parallel. This is unique. Seems as if the biblical description of the creation of woman gives her this worth and value. This emphasis on the creation of the woman is what gives her dignity and worth. Both created as image of God. And and with this sameness, both as image of God, they were both given the creation mandate. If we looked at Genesis 1, it says they will have dominion. They will multiply. They will rule and fill the earth together. They are given the creation mandate. So they were not made as superior and inferior, better and lesser. That's a lie. That's a lie, 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 lie. People will tell you that's what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. They are not superior and inferior. They're not better and less. Okay, they are same, worth and dignity and value, image of God, male and female. And they were created as image of God to be mutually interdependent. Mutually interdependent. And you hear this in 1 Corinthians 11, this is what Paul says. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, and Paul's appealing to the creation account here, right? For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Every single one of you guys has a mom. Amen. That's right. Amen. Some of you have better moms than others. I'm just saying, no. Listen, all of you, all of you, oh, You owe who you are to your mother. We we see this so often as we read these great stories of men who've accomplished many things. My wife and I talk about this all the time. How mothers and women have this impact on their sons as they raise them and nurture them. So... We are made to be mutually interdependent. Every woman has her origin from man, from Adam, and every man in turn has his origin from a woman. So he and she, man and woman, are the same. And yet, man and woman are not the same. They are the same, and they are not the same. Now, that would be an easy point to make. That would seem to be an easy point to make, right? I sit at the breakfast table with my kids, and sometimes I ask them, are mom and dad the same? And they say, no, no, not at all. Dad's really fun, and mom's not so much fun. (laughs) I'm just saying. No, they say, no, of course not. Dad's really tall, mom's really short, you know, and all this stuff. (laughs) However, what, what I'm trying to get them to see is that mom and dad, we were made for different things. We were made differently. It's, it's obvious. It's obvious that we were made differently. And yet we live in a world, in a mainstream of secular thought, right, t- today, that despises any notion of sexual distinction or difference. They despise any notion that there is a difference between male and female. Men are, and women, right, in our society, men and women are no different. And yet, every time, every time 
it is the first woman to accomplish anything. We're told, look at the first woman to accomplish anything. So it's like, it's like our society can't make up its mind. You want everybody to be the same, but you don't want them to, I don't, it doesn't make sense. Equality for our society, and this is, this is something all of us have been impacted by, okay? All of us. Equality in our day and age must mean no distinction. Equality must mean sameness. However, according to scripture, the man and woman are created at different times with different roles, with different responsibilities. Adam, Adam was first created outside of the garden and then placed in the garden as its priest to cultivate it, work it, and guard it, to protect it. The woman, and you can see this, right? You can see in his responsibility, he's designed for that work. He's designed to work it, to guard it, to keep it, to protect it. That's what a man is designed for. The woman, by distinction, was created from Adam, She was created in the garden. She was created in their home. Many writers believe that that connects her with the inner life of that garden. Man was created outside the garden and placed there to work it and to keep it. Woman was created in the garden as the source of life there and the cultivator of life, the inner life of that garden. And in order to carry out her function, she has been given a womb. Woman has been given a womb. Both are Adam. Both are mankind. Male has been given the responsibility of working and keeping. Woman has been given the responsibility of filling the earth with life. And she has been designed accordingly. She has been given a womb to cultivate, nurture, and sustain life. And this is, this is important. No one else, no one else can help Adam with the task of producing and rearing children. No one else. This is going to be very offensive. But you, you've, you've got to be anchored in the truth. The womb is not a woman's ball and chain. She is not enslaved because of her womb. The womb is not a ball and chain. In fact, the womb brings life. She brings life like God gives life. That's what she's given to do. Now, in this, we've got to be careful. In this, what we are seeing is not, these are not, this pattern, the patterns and the postures that we're seeing here, the patterns and the postures, as one author puts it, the patterns and the postures of male and female. This is not so much prescription. There are prescriptions here. But what we've got to be careful not to just reduce it down to, okay, man, you do these 10 things, and woman, you do these 10 things. That, that's what a woman does. Or that's what a man does. A man should never do this kind of thing. A woman shouldn't do, ever do this kind of thing. That's not what's trying to be said here. What's, try to be, what's trying to be communicated is a pattern and a posture of male, female, and a completion, a complementary relationship. So we see that male and female, they are the same in worth and dignity and value. Image of God. They are not the same. They are designed uniquely. And this then gives the New Testament teaching. This is what fuels the New Testament teaching regarding the church and the home. And how the church and the home are to be structured See, the, the, the rules about home and church and the commandments, again, the commandments are given for life. The commandments about how church and home are to be structured, they hearken back to the Genesis account, to Genesis chapter 2. They are not just the product of some outdated patriarchy, but they have everything to do with how God has designed man and woman distinctly. 
Our complementarity is good. Our distinction and our embracing of those distinctions is good. And it proclaims the truth of who God is. This is how we order, and this is why we order our homes the way we do. and Why we order and design our churches the way we do. We see the man and woman are the same. Man and woman are distinct. And here in the garden, they will be rejoined as one. The woman is taken from the man so that they then can be rejoined as one and in this rejoining be completed. So you can't miss the implication here at the end of Genesis chapter 2. You cannot miss the implication for sexual union. The joining of man and woman will be the means by which the filling of the earth takes place. Now we... we, We're not going to reduce the purpose of marriage down to only procreation. However, this is such a central thrust of what marriage is meant to do. You say, well, that's easy for you to say. You have eight kids. We know that's what you think, Pastor Paul. Well, I wish. Let's just be really vulnerable with you. I wish I could tell you that whenever I was in my 20s and we started having kids, that I had the conviction and the intention, no, I'm going to do this because I believe this is part of my role. And, and fulfilling the creation mandate, being a faithful Christian. I didn't. I didn't have that conviction. I've come into that conviction. And that is my conviction. I believe it's good to have children. I believe marriage is designed by God for the purposes of God. And I believe one of those very clear and distinct purposes is to bear children. And I think it is odd. I think it is odd and I think it is gross how we have in our society taken marriage and just bent it around ourselves where marriage is just about me and fulfilling me and doing what I want to do. It's very selfish. It is not what marriage was designed to be. Have kids if you're able. And I I know not everyone is able. Again, we know post-fall, the world doesn't work the way that we want it to work. We know that. And this is hard, hard, hard to hear. Very painful for many, many marriages that do not produce children for whatever reason. But they want children. And they they are devastated by that reality. Why are they devastated? Because God has designed children. God has designed procreation to be good. That is why it's so painful. So if you can, and if you're married, as your pastor, I'm telling you, Having children is good. And the sexual relationship is good. I cannot cannot tell you how many times I've sat with Christian marriages and the sexual relationship is broken and one of a lot of hurt and shame. Look at verse 25. It has it there. Well, verse 24 says, Therefore, because, because this woman comes out of the man, because she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. They will be joined together, made one. And the man, his wife, look at that, were both naked and were not ashamed. Completely exposed and not ashamed. Nothing to hide. This is how God has designed the sexual union of marriage. Naked and unashamed. We see that God is the giver of life. God has created man to live in his good land. He has given man commandments to preserve his life in that good land. And he has given woman to complete man and to produce, bring forth more life. God brings life. But we know Genesis 3 is coming. We know Genesis 3 is reality. That because of man's sin, death has entered the world. And God's good creation, 
does not look and work the way God has designed. Again, there is no design flaw in what God has made. But man's sin has corrupted God's good design and opposed it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We, we said this at the wedding last night. There is a marriage that opens up the pages of Scripture. God, in his perfect Edenic world, his perfect world, he places in that world a marriage, Adam and Eve, a marriage to bless the earth for the good of the earth. Scripture concludes in another perfect state, a reality that also has a tree of life and a river of life. And there, in that perfect state, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is another marriage. Have you ever put that together? The Bible opens with a marriage, and the Bible closes with a marriage. That marriage is between the Son, Jesus, and his bride, the church, his people. Jesus has restored man to their place. This is why Jesus says when he comes, he says, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. This is why Jesus has come. He is the priest that Adam failed to be. Adam failed to keep and guard the sanctuary of God. Jesus has come and he has defeated the serpent. He has defeated the enemy. Jesus has called a people to himself to be his bride. And he has told us if we will turn from our sin, if we will turn from our own way, if we will turn from our rejection of God and his goodness, if we will turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in him and what he's done, he has died for sin and he has risen again from the grave to give us new life. If we will turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will return us. He will return us to that for which we were made and we will have life, eternal life in knowing God. But there's another picture there at the end of Revelation where it says that all those who come into this new creation will be clothed, clothed in righteousness. In the garden, they were both naked and were not ashamed. They had no reason for shame because there was no sin. Because of sin, sin has brought shame and despair and grief. But all of that will be remedied and has been remedied in the death and resurrection of Christ. And he will clothe us so that we no longer will experience shame and guilt for sin. And we will be married to him and live with him clothed in righteousness, unashamed once for all. That is where our hope is. And I can tell you, for all of us who are Christians, if we are going to have Christian marriages, if we are going to be godly husbands and wives, if we are going to be godly parents, if we are going to fulfill and carry out the mission that God has given us, it can and only will happen as we look to Jesus. Jesus who is the giver of life. Jesus, who is the perfect example, the perfect evidence to us of God's goodness. That is why we sang that song earlier. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, he is all that I need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your gift to us of life. You have created life. You are the one who sustains life. You are the one 
who gives commands to preserve life. And you have given us marriage, which is meant to produce life. All of this is because you are good. But Lord, we confess our sin. We confess our desire to run our own life and to have our own way. We see that evidenced all around the world today. Lord, this grieves your heart and it grieves our heart. It grieves our heart in our own lives as we settle for less than good. I pray that you would cause us to see the hope that we have in Jesus, to be restored to you, to have life once again. I pray for all of those here today who do not know you and and still are suspicious of your goodness and your good heart towards them. I pray that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe. And I pray that you would help us as believers, those who have professed faith in Christ, that we would see and believe and embrace your goodness for us and believe your heart towards us. Help us to be faithful as we look to Jesus to pattern our marriages and our lives after, after Him, our Savior. Then I pray, I do pray for all of those here this morning who are grieving because of the loss of marriage, because of no marriage or a failed marriage. Well, these are real griefs and we, we come to you acknowledging the pain and the difficulty that we experience. I pray that this pain and this grief would cause us to run to you even more because we know that you're good. We know that, that this world, this world in the way that it has re- rejected you and rebelled against you, this is not how you've made it. But your heart towards us has never changed. You are for us. You want good for us. I pray that we would run to you and trust you. We pray all of this for your name's sake, for your glory's sake. Amen.